days, uh, at least on the emphasis on the Holy Spirit as we've been going through the forgotten God. Uh, not that, uh, that God somehow has left us in a mystery, but often we forget about the third person of the Godhead, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is vitally involved in the, in the lives of those who know the Lord Jesus Christ in a personal way. And as we uh, finish off that part of our series today, I, I thought we'd begin with a little bit of a story told by uh, Francis Chan on video and give you a chance to kind of just maybe picture in your mind in the most simplest of ways what it means to rely, depend, and surrender yourself to the Holy Spirit. The Big Red Tractor and His Little Village Once upon a time, in a little field, in a happy little village, lived a big red tractor. Every morning during plowing season, the village people, no, not those village people, would come out and start the red tractor. Everyone loved the tractor and the powerful noises it would make. They would cheer for the big red tractor because he would help them through plowing season. The people worked together to move the tractor. Half of the villagers would push from behind, while the other half would pull. They had been doing it this way for many generations. Some days they moved the tractor 10 feet. Some days they moved it 20. They did this for three whole months every year. Because of their hard work, the villagers always managed to plow the field, just in time to plant and just before the rainy season. The rains would come to water the field. Then the sun would come out to make the crops grow. And then the people would come out and harvest all the new crops. It was just enough food to feed the entire village. One day, Farmer Dave was cleaning out his attic. To his surprise, he found an old book tucked beneath his great-grandpa's belongings. It was the owner's manual to the big red tractor. This book told about how the tractor was made and all the great things it could do. Farmer Dave studied the book all night. He was shocked by what he was reading. According to the book, if the big red tractor was running properly, it could plow the whole field in just one day. Early the next morning, Farmer Dave gathered the villagers to tell them the good news. But nobody believed him. There's no way that tractor can move on its own, some said. One lady said, it sounds like you're reading a fairy tale. The people laughed at him. This made Farmer Dave very sad. This didn't stop Farmer Dave from believing what he read. Every night, while the other villagers were asleep, Farmer Dave spent time repairing the big red tractor. One night, Farmer Dave fixed the tractor completely. He jumped on the tractor and had so much fun driving it, he ended up plowing the whole field in one night. The next morning, the villagers woke up and were in shock. The whole field had been plowed. It's a miracle, one man said. Maybe aliens came down, said an old woman. No, look over there, a little boy shouted. It was Farmer Dave sleeping on the tractor. It was then that the people shouted, He was right! The tractor book is true! The villagers ended up plowing many fields that year and harvesting way more food than they could ever eat. They had so many leftover boxes of food that they began taking the boxes to other villages where food was scarce. 
the big red tractor and his little village soon became famous throughout the land. They became known as the most generous and life-giving people in the whole wide world. What makes a great church? What makes a great church is a church that really understands the story of the big red tractor. Because we can through all our efforts, go through, through all our energy and our uh, thoughts in terms of what God wants us to do and how we ought to do it. And if we're not really reading the manual and applying the, the power that God has given us, we'll be, we'll be doing everything on our own effort. And so as we look at this morning, kind of the closure of uh, thinking about the Holy Spirit, I, I want us to now look a little bit broader. In many ways, when we study the God's Word and as we uh, try to find its truth for our lives, we, we think about how, how does it apply to me? And in many ways, we ought to think not only to how, how does it apply to me, but a play on words, how does it apply to we? How does it really work for all of us? Because God wants us to understand that He wants to build not only individual lives, but He, he and not only impact families, but, but He wants to influence a church, a group of people. And so often, even like as we think about the story of the, of the little red tractor, in many ways you can say, well, what, what makes a, a, a great a red tractor? And you might say, well, a, a big red tractor would make a great tractor. And as we think about this morning, we, we want to emphasize what really God emphasized, what makes a great church. And, and I won't be sharing anything, anything just uh, profound, but just simply what God speaks about that and how, how we're involved in it individually to make any church a great church. Uh, what is a great church? A great church is a spirit-filled church. Just like a great tractor, or if it's red or whatever color it is, it is a church that's filled with the energy to make it do what it's supposed to do. Uh, Francis Chan uh, was a pastor of, of a big church, but as he comments in the seventh chapter of the book that you're reading this week, the seventh chapter, he speaks, as you think about what is a great church in God's mind, in God's heart, it, it's not the size of it. It's its faithfulness. It, it's not what it looks like, but what is the, what is the picture of its heart? And, and, and when you think about that, you, as you read through the, the letters, the epistles uh, of the apostles and writers in the New Testament, as you have the churches identified and, and the writers speaking into it from, from God's heart and perspective, the one thing that's interesting about those churches, we don't know anything about its, about its size. But we will get glimpses into its heart and into its faithfulness, into its obedience to God's word and its dependence upon the Spirit. To the church of Galatia, he said, why are you so foolish? You, you, didn't, you didn't begin this on your own efforts. It was the Spirit of God who made an impact in your life. Well, why are you now trying to move that little red tractor to the church without dependence upon the Spirit? What is a great church? A great church is a church that's Spirit-filled. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at a couple introductory points, and then i got seven bullet points for you this morning. A great church is a Spirit-filled church. Do you not know that you are, and here's interesting, in the original language, the, the you there is in the plural. It's not in the singular. You collectively are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And again, he's talking collectively. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And so as we think of ourselves 
as the church, the church is not where it's located necessarily geographically in terms of its building. That's a place where it dispenses its ministry throughout the week in the community. But it's really in the lives of its people. And the Spirit of God indwells us. The issue is, are we allowing the Spirit of God to control us? But it's interesting as we've been going through this series and I've been getting some feedback from some of the people in their life groups. Some of the questions back, well, I don't know if, as I read about the Spirit of God if I've, if I've ever been filled with the Spirit. I, I'm not even really know if I know the Spirit of God. Well, again, sometimes we can take this book, which is rather large and it has a lot of, lot of information about God and His plan. And there are diff- parts of it that are more difficult to understand than others. But the main, the main truths that God wants us to, to put to heart and to, into life are, are pretty straightforward. How do, you, how do you know if you know the Spirit of God? Well, let's look at what God says. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, it says this, By this you know the Spirit of God. Now, I just want you to know that I'm not making this up. This is, this is pretty plain language here. How do you know if you know the Spirit of God? By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And let's just be honest. As we look into the Christmas season, which for some is the holiday season, and now for some it's just the winter break, um, the, the significance of Christmas means nothing to them. Because they don't think of, of Christmas as the time in which we celebrate God Almighty loving us so much, whom he's created in his image, wanting to deliver his message and deal with the problem we have that separates us from God, which is sin. He wants to send someone who's going to be our Savior, which is the name of Jesus. That's what it means, that he is the Savior. That this speaks of God becoming flesh. Jesus, the Christ, the promised one, has come here and lived on this planet. And if you, if you confess, which that word simply means to agree with, that you agree that this is true, then you now have the ability to, to know the Spirit of God because this is what the Spirit of God is testifying about, that Jesus is the Christ. He's come in the flesh. It's God communicating to us. And, of course, there's the opposite perspective and this is the spirit of the antichrist and the word antichrist there's the one who is to come who is the specific um, expression of the antichrist in human form but the word antichrist also speaks to a a a, a worldview and a conviction of what is true the word anti can mean one of two things it can mean against like anti something it can also mean instead of and there are many people who are replacing Jesus with anything else they believe. And he said the spirit of the Antichrist, who's against the true Christ, or wants to replace the Christ, that is the person who will not know the Spirit of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is already in the world. This message has been out. But let, let me put it another plain way. You can know that you know that you have the Spirit of God. You know him personally by what you believe about Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, it says it as plainly as you can take it as John said it in his epistle, his little letter. He said, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 
Now, obviously, he's not just saying words that are coming out of your mouth, but he is saying, expressing that as what you are convinced is true and living that out. And so if in your heart of hearts, your desire and your life direction is to follow the one who is in charge, and Jesus is the one in charge. He is the Lord of your life. That comes only by the Spirit of God. Remember when uh, Jesus asked that man on the street question, yeah, well, who do men say that I am? And, yeah, and they said, well, some of you say you're a prophet, some John the Baptist come back from the dead, maybe Elijah. Well, who, who do you say that I am? And Peter goes, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, well, you know, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but, the God, but God Almighty brought that to your heart. So as we think of what makes a great church, a great church is a church that's spirit-filled. A great uh, a person who knows the Spirit of God is a person who really knows Jesus. But I, I want to take this a little bit further this morning. Again, emphasize, well, how do I know I'm, I'm really being filled with the Spirit? Again, Sometimes we make this a little bit more complicated than it is. It's not easy, but it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty simple, but it, it, it causes us to think about, are we sincerely following that? Well, let's, let's look at some bullet points this morning. How do you know if you're filled with the Spirit? How do you know if you're Spirit-filled? How many think that's an important question? The rest of you can just leave right now and go to the fellowship. Okay. Is there a way we can know that we are filled with the Spirit? And again, uh, let me just say this from the beginning. The, the Spirit-filled life is both critical and progressive. Critical in that at any point in time, you are either filled with the Spirit or you are not. But it's progressive in that it's an ongoing, maturing process. We are like children physically that mature uh, physically, and we are spirit children as, as God's children that, that mature spiritually as well. And, and the more time we are living by the power of the Spirit in our life, the, the maturity rate goes up a little faster and a little bit deeper. Well, let's again, let's, let's define what it is. Uh, are you filled with the Spirit? Well, one way is to say at any moment in time, if someone asks you, are, are, are right now, are you surrendered to the Spirit? Are you desirous that, that he would be the one who's guiding you and directing? Are you surrendered to him? I give up God. I don't want to live by self. I want to live by the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 says this. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And we've, we've all memorized that verse this month, right? I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He goes on in verse 17. He says this. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit... And the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. And, and so simply he says there's a battle going on. There's the battle of your flesh, which is that part of your life, which after you came to know Christ is the remains of the old life in, in which you are uh, in a, uh, incapable of living out the Christian life when you go back to the old life and, and live according to your own strengths, your own resources, your own self-desires. And, and there's the Spirit of God who lives within you. And they're in opposition to one another. And, and when you've got compete, competing voices in your head, you have to decide which one are you going to what? Listen to. Isn't that true? You know, when I'm watching a ball game and Alice is talking to me, I, I have a big decision. Do I listen to the ball game or do I listen to her? <laughs> no, 
Don't be laughing like none of you ever do that. All right, come on now. All right. Whatever it might be. You might be listening to music. You might be listening to various... Isn't it interesting how people, when you're watching a program, they always want to ask you a question right at the point where you've got to hear the dialogue. What the, what the heck with that, right? What the, is that right to say in church? All right. Anyway, is that, is that, you know, you say, well, do I listen to her or do I listen to what? I mean, if I miss this, I miss the whole point of the program, right? I, you know, that's kind, of, that's kind of how the Christian life is, Okay. You know, we, we surrender ourselves to Christ. We surrender ourselves to the Spirit. We want Him to lead our life. And then as we go throughout the day, there are times when all of a sudden we hear these competing voices. And I don't mean there's a battle, there's an audible voice in your, in, your, in your brain speaking to you. But, you know, this is what I want to do. But, you know, I know that's not what God wants me to do. I, I know I want to do this. And there are a lot of other people, and I could probably rationalize it. But, you know, I know because what God's Word says, that's not where I ought to go. And at that point, you, you make a decision. Do I surrender to the Spirit or do I surrender to myself? And, and sometimes it's the things you, you know you shouldn't do, and sometimes it's the things you should do. And if someone calls you up, they need help, and you don't feel like giving help. But you know that's a higher priority. That's something that would please God. And you give up self to do what the Spirit wants. So as we think about being filled with the Spirit, it's, it's not necessarily accepting a call to some far distant land, though that might be in the plan for you. It, it's, it's not necessarily get involved in some ministry that will stretch you to the point where you feel like you would have a mental, emotional breakdown, though that might be what God wants to stretch you to do. But it's simply, as you go through life, the things you, you know you shouldn't do, you, you surrender to the Spirit, you listen to Him. And the things you know that you need to do on a daily basis in ordinary life, when, when you know you've got something to say would really get somebody, you know, oh, I'm holding it back, you know. Because you're not building that person up, you're tearing them down. That's, that's the Spirit of God being in control of your life. Because as you think about how do you know a Spirit-filled church, a Spirit-filled church is a church surrender of the Spirit, but a, a, a Spirit-filled church will, will be a church where people will say, you know, that person looked like how Jesus lived in their attitudes as well as their actions. Point number one, how do you know if you're uh, Spirit-filled? Are you surrendered to the Spirit? Secondly, and, and these bullet points, I don't even know if we'll get through all of them, but they're this ones I, that just kind of grabbed me this week. And this is, this is another side of the spirit-filled life where sometimes we, we think that it's, it's not being genuine with God. We're, we're, we're almost being overly spiritual. And, and I would say this. If you're spirit-filled, you're going to speak honestly to God. You're going to speak honestly to God. And I want to read a section out of Psalm 51 after uh, David had been involved in sin with Bathsheba. And, and then I, wanna, I want us all to turn, if you have your Bibles, to Psalm 142. Uh, David writes, Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me, from me. He'd so desperately want to be in relationship, close relationship. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. And so you recognize how good God is. And he said, God, I, I want to be in touch with you. And he recognized that he had not been in touch with him. And that's why he fell into that kind of sin. And, and then he said, and, and the... And the result will be, I'll be used of you. Then I will teach transgressors your, your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. And just a side note there. You might be, you might be here this morning and say, you know, 
what's the use? I've messed up so much in my life. How could God ever use me? Everybody will always point their finger. You great hypocrite. You've you've done all these other things. How how can you be used of God? Think about David here. He, He had just committed the sin of adultery. He tried to hide it. He actually was involved in a murderous act of the husband of Bathsheba. And, and he caused so much heartache within the whole nation. And yet he says after this, if the Holy Spirit is ruling and reigning in my life, I will turn sinners, which would also have included a definition of who? Himself, from their evil ways. So no matter what you've done in the past, God still can use, if he can use David, he can use any of us. But look at Psalm 142. Psalm 142, uh, and the book of Psalms is a, I was just reflecting on this this past week. Psalm, the Psalms are a, a very honest worship book, but it's also a very honest prayer book in terms of the expression, whether it's sung or whether it's spoken, about what's going on in a person's heart. Look at uh, Psalm 142. I cry out to the Lord with my voice. W- with my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. You know, we, we've just finished the, the Thanksgiving season. And I don't know if you were like us. You know, I kind of made my family do certain things, you know, Thanksgiving. They all kind of give me the look, oh, are we doing this again, Dad? You know, uh, but it was interesting in our life groups this week. Uh, one of the things that we threw in the life groups was go around the room and, and just to the person on your right, say something that you're thankful for them about. And I had three life groups, uh, and then I had a staff that we did this in as well. You know, in every four experiences of that this week, people were brought to tears as people were sharing things of thanksgiving about them. And, and, and as we think about that, we need, and we talked about that last week, we, we need to be saying thanks a lot more than we do. That's, that's, that's God's will. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus to be thankful in all things. But I, but I say that, and we, and we did in our family, and again, there were, some, there, were some, there were some really touching moments as people said certain things about each other. And it was just, it was just saying thanks for that person. It, it is, it's sometimes when we do that, we think that the only thing we can do with God is be positive with Him. You know, I, I've got to say something that sounds good. Well, you have, you have the psalmist here say, I'm, I'm, I'm sharing with you my complaints. I, I'm telling you about all my troubles. It, it would be just as legitimate in the small group to say, okay, now I want you to go around, and I want you to share a complaint or a trouble. Now, what it would be really fun is I want you to say a complaint about the person on your right. No, that would be. <laughs> but, you know, there, there, there comes a place where we, are just, we need to be honest with God. That, that's, that's the spirit-filled life as well. And, and usually what happens when we share our troubles and our complaints, and God gives us a different perspective on them. He goes on, When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. In, in, the, in the way in which I walk, they have secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and, on, and, and see, and there, for there's no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. You could ask yourself, is this a spirit-filled believer at this moment? 
Well, he can't be. He's, he's just complaining to God. And yet what he's doing, he's being honest with God. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge. My portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. See, that was really a a prayer of faith, believing that God is the God of all comfort and hope. I can't find refuge anywhere, so I'm just turning to you. And and I'm expecting that somehow you're going to deal bountifully with me, even though now I'm all I am is surrounded by trouble. And and the issue is, we don't know when this and how this prayer was answered. But it was a genuine expression of being honest with God. And and isn't, isn't that what we also want from people? We want people who are genuine. Who who say, you know, this is this is not this is this is this is not superficial. This is real. When they're struggling, they they don't paint the the happy grin on their face. They they express what they're going through, and and then at the end they say, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm just going to hold on to God. That's a spirit filled believer and collectively when god's people do that's a spirit-filled church how do you know if you're filled with the spirit are you surrendered to the spirit and are you speaking honestly to god thirdly and i had to put it this way because these are supposed to be put answered with the the yes are you not (laughs) self-centered are you not self-centered basically that's a pretty good measurement when we are filled with self, obviously we're not filled with the Spirit. And again, we're to be honest with God so we can express our selfishness to God. But that's not the direction we want to go. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we have these words. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, and then, of course, this is the key phrase as we think about being Spirit-filled, if any fellowship of the Spirit... And the word fellowship is a word from which we get communion. It's a word for partnership. If you're in partnership with the Spirit of God, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded. And Paul's saying, you know, you, 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 you lift up my spirits when I look at you collectively and you give me joy um, when these things happen. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And then he has this phrase, verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness or humility of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So, you know, so what's a spirit-filled Christian? A spirit-filled Christian is a person who is others-centered, not self-centered. It's so easy to get wrapped up in self. It's just that, that that's natural experience of being that we we want to take care of ourselves before we take care of anybody else i came across an interesting quote from uh, benjamin franklin he said he that falls in love with himself will have no rivals see the issue the issue is not that we 
love ourselves too much. It's how we love ourselves. And when we are preoccupied with self, then our life will not really be open to other people and what God wants to do in it. I was reading this little conversation between um, these two little kids, and they were, uh, they were talking about something that they had made. And one little kid said, what is your opinion of my painting? And the, the little uh, boy next to the little girl said, well, it isn't worth anything. And catch this. She says, I know, but I'd like to hear it anyway. She asked for the opinion of someone. They said they didn't like what they... She, she took it this way. I'd like to get your opinion of this painting. And the person said, it isn't worth anything. And she took it. Well, I know your opinion isn't worth anything. But I want to hear it anyway. Now, I'm sure that little boy didn't catch it either, okay? But often that's how we treat people. I want your feedback if it's something I can agree with. But if it's not something I agree with, I don't think your opinion matters anyway. And that's a preoccupation with self in the things that we do. And let me just put it this way. We should never, in Romans 12, talk, we should never think less of ourselves. But we should think less of ourselves. Did you catch the play on words? We have so much to have a high opinion of who we are. As Christians, we ought to have the highest self-esteem on this planet. Our self-identity ought to be secure. Our self-image ought to be one filled with confidence. Why? Because we're a child of God. We are, we are, self, uh, we, we are part of God's eternal family. We're, we're joint heirs with Christ. We're in Christ. God has prepared a place for us where we're going to spend eternity. God has empowered us. God has gifted us. God has not only created us in his image, but now he's made us new creatures. We are people that are fully forgiven. We are considered by God not simply as slaves and servants, but as his friends. We have much to feel that we have everything going for us. In fact, that's what it says. The Bible says, I've blessed you with every blessing. Every spiritual blessing they have in place in Christ Jesus. You have nothing that you're lacking. So we ought, we ought to think of ourselves as God thinks of ourselves. And God has a high view of who we are. He says, I've created you higher than the angels. But on the other side of it, we don't think less about ourselves. We just spend less time thinking about ourselves. And isn't that where a lot of our problems come with? When we just get so preoccupied with what's going on in our little world, what's happening to us, what people think about us. And see, if, if God has a high opinion, why are we so worried about what other people think? See, a spirit-filled person is thinking about others more than they think about themselves. What is a spirit-filled Christian? A spirit-filled Christian is one who is surrendered to the Spirit. He speaks honestly to God. Uh, he's not, they are not self-centered. Fourthly, 
And they're not deceived by sin. This is an interesting one. Beware, brethren, unless there be any of you in, with an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is still called the day, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The problem about this one is that if you're deceived, the problem is you probably don't what? You don't know it. You know, if, if I've got a wrong view somewhere, if I'm going down a path that I think is right when it's really wrong, I, I'm now deceived by the direction I'm headed. And if it's a, a, a direction that's not honoring to God, that's sin. And, and so a spirit-filled Christian is one that says, I, I, I want to be very careful that I don't go down that path. And there's really only two ways you don't go down that path. One is the Spirit of God is really driving you to Scripture, driving you to understand the application of it, and empowering you to live a different way. But God has also placed us in the church so that it's not just what God does in our lives, but in the God's people what He does in our lives. In Galatians 6.1 it says this, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you too be tempted. A spiritual Christian is a person who's not falling in the deceitfulness of sin, partly because the Spirit of God is leading them and directing them and guiding through Scripture. But also he has other people, she has other people in their lives. When, when you go down a certain path, they, they, they come alongside you very carefully and say, look, it, you, you need to reconsider what you're doing right now. As Tony has been leading our men's ministry for now 15 years, you know, his favorite passage in Proverbs is, as iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. Which simply means we need to have, we need to have the church. We need to have people in our lives that, that, who are willing to get into our lives and say, hey, you're going down the wrong path. Does that make sense? And, and that we're willing for that to happen. And hopefully every one of you here has people in your life that are honest with you. That will speak into your life. That will, that will confront you in a loving way. And even when it's not in a loving way, you, you have a listening ear. Because sin will deceive us. Another little story that I like this week. And it really, uh, you know, even even the, even the 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 sin of pride can so easily get into us. A five-year-old and a six-year-old, and the six-year-old was talking to the five-year-old. Are you in Linda's room at school? The response back was, "No, I'm not, but she's in my room." <laughs> Catch that? We're sometimes that way. And so we, we just need for people to point out what's wrong in our lives. Real quickly. What is a spirit-filled Christian? A spirit-filled Christian is a person who surrendered to the Spirit. A, a spirit-filled Christian is one who speaks honestly to God, and, and, and that's the thing we don't talk enough about. A spirit-filled Christian is one who is not self-centered, who's other-centered. A, a, a spiritual Christian is a, is a person who's not deceived by sin, who has other people alongside them that will help the Spirit of God point out that which is wrong. Fifthly, a spiritual Christian is a person who, who, who answers this question in the affirmative. Are, are you asking God to search your heart? 
we've talked in recent weeks that in different settings that uh, that Psalm 46:10 passage, "Be still, my God, yeah, and know that I am God." And, and and if we don't have any time where we are still before God and asking God to to really impact our lives, we're probably not opening up to Him to to point out those areas that need to be changed. I so like uh, Psalm 139. And again, put in the spirit context. In Psalm 139, verse 7, it says, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I go uh, flee from your presence? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. A, a spirit-filled Christian is a person who spends time with God and says, God, you know, I, 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 you know, I know the things in my life that I'm, I'm working on, but is there anything in my life that you want me working on that right now I'm not even aware that I need to be working on? that needs to be worked on what what thing you you have free reign to search my life to find out what needs to be changed that that's the kind of open relationship we need to have with god who who's leading our life sixthly are, are you seeing god work in your life in second Corinthians chapter 3 verse 17 and 18 great passage says now now the lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the lord is there's liberty but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So as we think about the Spirit being evident in our life, we, we can see, you know, we, we aren't what we should be. But over a period of time, we aren't what we used to be. Can you look back in, in your past and say, you know, I, you know I'm... There's still a lot of things that need to be changed, but there are a few things I can see that God has chipped away. He, he's been working in my life. I, I, I am being changed. That's the word transform. It has the idea of, of metamorphosis is happening in your life. It's the same idea I found in Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And then verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And how? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. See, we, probably one of the greatest fears in life is the, is the, is the fear of change. Do you know people who just, man, change just drives them crazy. And, and there's a lot of reasons why change is a fearful experience because it complicates the life, it, there are unknowns, all those kind of things. But change for the Christian is, is that which we ought to embrace. God, I, I want you to keep changing me. I don't want to stay the way I am. I, I don't want to just rationalize my behavior or my uh, lack of behavior. I want to change. Have uh, I told you i got a granddaughter? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, you know, and it's been a long time since I played with, but, you know, Play-Doh. Have you ever played with Play-Doh? I don't know who invented Play-Doh, but what a great invention, right? You know, Play-Doh, you know, get that stuff together, and you can mold in all kinds of things, right? H have you ever played with dough that's not Play-Doh, you know, and, and try to reform it? You know, clay that's been made into something, it's dried out, and you just can't, you can't rework it. See, that's what we, we, we need to be Play-Doh in God's hands, where he's shaping and forming us and, and making us more usable for him. And a spirit-filled Christian is a person who begins to see that happening in their life. And then finally this morning, one more S. Are, are you wanting people to know that you've spent time with Jesus? 
I, I, I like so much as I see the change of the, the apostles in the book of Acts from people who were fearful and running away and uh, people of unbelief in terms of what, all that Jesus said. And all of a sudden the Spirit came and they, they were changed. In Acts 4.8, just picking that passage that we're not going to spend the whole time in, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, the, the one who was afraid of speaking that he had actually been with Jesus to three little girls, now is speaking to all those who had put Jesus on the cross, begins to present the gospel message. And then later on in that same chapter, he says this, uh, he, he presents the gospel, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then here was the reaction of the crowd to looking at Peter. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and, re- and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. Because basically they had no human explanation as to why Peter and John were the way they were at that moment. And sometimes we look at people and we can say, well, I know why that person is a good basketball player. He can jump four feet off the ground or he uh, has a certain height that allows that person to put the basket in very easily because he's seven feet tall. And, and we can explain people's behavior, maybe because they've, they've done very well academically in school or, or they're musically inclined. And you say, well, I know why, why that person's a great musician. They develop, but they, they've got talent. But then you look at other people and say, I can't explain why they are the way they are. And, and there was only un, one explanation to why they could explain Peter and John, and, and it said in the last phrase here, and they realized that these uneducated, untrained men had been with who? With Jesus. And, and when we spend time with Jesus in this book, through the, the ministry of the Spirit in our lives, who illuminates this, book, allows us to understand and apply it in our lives, then people will see that we've been with Jesus. And when we've been with Jesus, the one he promised to send us, the helper, will be resident in our lives and people will see, I want what they have because I cannot explain the kind of people they are apart from the fact that they've met God. And that should be true not only individually, but collectively as God's church. And the question I leave with you this, this, this morning, are, are you part of a great church? Are you part of a great church? Or you could phrase this way, are you doing your part so that the church can be great? Let's pray. Father, as, as we pursue knowing you and knowing you deeply, you have, you've left it plain that it's all about knowing who Jesus is because that's what the Spirit of God is doing in the lives of people, convincing that, them that Jesus the Christ has come in the flesh and that he truly is God. He's truly the Savior. He's truly the one who can change us from the inside out. And Father, I would pray for anyone here this morning that maybe if, if they have come on this Sunday after Thanksgiving, that if they don't know Jesus, that they might surrender to him in faith, believing that that what he did on the cross is sufficient for them, and give their hearts wholly and completely to him. And when that happens, then the Spirit of God will lead and rule in their lives. Father, as we continue to praise you through giving and through worship, help us all, wherever we are on the journey of knowing God, 
give ourselves completely and wholly to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.